Welcome to the Policy in Plainer English podcast. I'm your host, Helen Laban. And today, we have the second half of our episode on lifestyle medicine. Last episode, we discussed how this approach works with patients around six different underlying elements of good health. The six pillars of lifestyle medicine, which is social connectedness, um, stress management, physical activity, healthful or nutritious eating, which is focused on whole food, plant-based foods and toxin intakes. That includes alcohol and, and tobacco. Did I get six? Mm, okay, I admit, I said I'd be counting and then I forgot to count. There's also sleep. The six are healthy eating, physical activity, stress management, supportive relationships, good sleep, and avoiding toxic or risky substances. And that is... So I'm Laura Jensen. I'm um, the program manager for RISE VT and for lifestyle medicine here at Springfield uh, Medical Care Systems. She's part of the lifestyle medicine team at Springfield Medical Care Systems. Last episode, we discussed some barriers to this approach becoming more widely adopted at healthcare practices. This episode, we're focusing on a question that underlies a lot of the work on food as part of health how to move people towards wanting to eat a healthier diet. And in the case of lifestyle medicine, a healthier diet is defined as plant-based. Yeah, that's right, vegan food in the land of the world's greatest cheese. Here to help us in this conversation, we have Laura, plus her two colleagues. I'm Adam Amley. I'm a, a licensed psychologist and practicing psychologist, but also the director of behavioral health at Springfield Medical Care Systems. I'm, I'm Scott Durgan. I'm the director of lifestyle medicine at Springfield Medical Care Systems. Now, before we get too deep into the conversation, I want to set a frame here. We've spoken in other episodes about lowering the barriers to eating healthy food, obstacles like affordability, time to prepare food, knowledge about health and diet. But a big barrier we haven't mentioned yet is simply whether people like the healthy food. And the question of what makes someone like or not like a particular diet is not a huge mystery. We like what's familiar. That's just the way things are, which might sound like bad news for the challenge of changing someone's familiar diet, but it's actually good news because it gives us a straightforward tool for starting that dietary shift. It's incremental steps repeated within a familiar context. Luckily, it doesn't take very long for a new food to start to feel familiar. So those small changes add up fast. Even if it's not a radical overnight change, it's still noticeable forward progress. This isn't a fad diet that's going to cause you to lose 60 pounds in 30 days and have a beach body. Um, but this is something that we want to help you increase the likelihood of living happier, healthier, and longer. How does building familiarity with new, healthier diets work in practice? First, let's reiterate the fad diet point. We're starting with small, sustainable changes. And also, those small changes, they matter. It is not an all or nothing. Your biochemistry, your physiology, your genetics aren't going to only benefit if you go all whole food plant-based. We can see very small percentages and changes in diet have dramatic effects in preventing diabetes or morbidity, mortality, premature death. That spectrum really helps. When we look at the studies, and certainly from my own personal journey, I've noticed the same thing. I don't necessarily demand that I never have meat or cheese or any of those things, but I feel so much better. The fact that small changes make a difference isn't just a clinical assessment. People feel better, too, and that reinforces the change. We want to keep doing things that feel good. The most obvious first step towards this goal of a healthy diet is identifying what a patient's already eating within a healthy diet and then doing more of that. The patients that are coming in saying, you know what? 
actually, I do make uh, a sweet potato chili and that goes over really well with the family once a month. I guess maybe I could have that. I could make that once a week or once every two weeks. That's easy. More of the food we like. Another strategy is focusing on adding foods into a diet without immediately removing other familiar elements. The most important thing we're going to talk about with food isn't taking away the bad foods. The first and most important thing is going to be adding in the good foods, adding in more of these, you know, more veggies, more fruits, more nuts and seeds. Adding new foods can naturally reduce the amount of the plate taken up by items like meat or cheese. That's the whole point behind the blended burger campaign, using mushrooms to replace some of the beef in hamburgers. Beans are another common substitute for meat. Think how many of us accept beans as part of chili, which I know is a big culinary debate. I serve cilantro braised beans on the side with my chili, but the bowl is only so big, it's still displacing some meat. There are also chefy tricks to make vegetable ingredients more appealing to serious meat eaters. That's one reason why charred vegetables are popular. Wrap some up as part of your burrito or in a sandwich, and that flavor of char and smoke is associated with meat, and it stops your brain from saying, wait, there's 20% less meat in here. I realize this isn't a cooking show. I dream of someday having a cooking podcast, but today is not that day. I'll make one more point about recipes. You can be clever about what vegetables you're bringing in to be sure that the meals remain filling. If it's not just a specific recipe, but the types of foods that tend to be very satiating and, and people enjoy a lot, number one on my list would be potatoes of some sort and various potato recipes that people use. They can often be a very popular. Now remember, for the sake of this conversation, we're assuming many barriers to trying new foods have been taken down. Swapping in different ingredients, adding things, taking them away, it's a lot easier when a grocery store is nearby and you can afford to take the chance on a dish that might be unpopular with your family. We talked about some of those barriers in episode one. Another thing we touched on in the first episode is how moving into a new diet incrementally in a way that's building from the foundation of what's already familiar to a patient, that takes pretty high engagement. This engagement is needed for teaching, support, and also accountability. When you're trying to institute a new habit, it's going to start to wane unless you have someone there to talk to you about, okay, what's going well, what's not going well, to really help with that behavior change. Not rocket science, right? You know, that we should eat better, we should ideally eat more plants, we should exercise more, we should sleep more, reduce toxins, manage our stress appropriately. Most people have the general sense of that. The frequency of visits is what's helping them make reasonable changes. I love this stuff and I love the data behind it and everything, but I still need accountability sometimes. I need to work with a trainer or have someone help me because I'm in a rut or I, I just want to change something. So I don't think we're, we ever would just be totally done. We're always going to continue to learn, but usually the typical patient is going to get a lot of accountability up front, depending on how fast they want to move and how committed they are to it. And then it'll, it'll uh, wane as the more, more and more time goes by. An important element of these regular connections is that it leaves the patient in greater control of the work. Patients can ask questions. They can observe what's happening with their diet and bring that back for input. We can have troubleshooting early on to clear away barriers and patients can be guided through noticing the ways dietary changes impact how they feel, an awareness that's a key part of making those positive changes stick. We're not driving the vehicle. You're driving the vehicle. We'll, we'll be in the passenger seat or the back seat, or you can put us in the trunk. We can give you some navigation options, but it's ultimately going to be you that steers the car where you want it. Because we know long-term, people don't do well with being told exactly what to do. 
they need to be kind of creating their own destiny. And that's what makes this makes it sustainable. So that's where if a patient's very motivated to the get-go, we might meet with them alternating, you know, every week, every two weeks. But down the road, that's going to start titrating back because they're the ones doing this. A final element of turning a plant-focused diet into one that feels familiar and sustainable is how it connects through to your community and social networks. Now, this is food. Social connections are a central theme in food. Next episode, we'll be going into more detail. In the meantime, we'll just note that one thing the Springfield Networks do really well is share recipes, whether through the potlucks they hosted prior to the pandemic or other conversations and online connections. Every month, people would come and they'd bring something they created. We had somebody demonstrating making, cooking a a plant-based dish there at the potluck, and um, it was so well-received. We had to stop it during COVID, but everyone is looking forward to it starting again. I know Russ is uh, one of our, our care coordinator made a very popular uh, lentil dish. I don't remember what it was called or a... Yep, it was a lentil stew. Everybody still asks for that recipe. I'm regularly asking what's been going well, but tell me some plant-based meal that you've enjoyed cooking lately because I, I kind of need a new one. To sum it up, what we're looking at here is a highly patient-focused, incremental, iterative process to help people develop sustainable new approaches to diet that can prevent and even reverse chronic diseases. I just made the process of enjoying good food sound really technical, and I apologize for that. The point is that I'm generalizing to show how this approach might connect with the other five pillars of lifestyle medicine. Think about movement and exercise. You're not going to recognize that you need more movement in your life and start with becoming a polo player. You're going to start with what's familiar in your routine and build from there. A walk, for example, might be a good starting point. So we've got our model, and the last piece is how to make it happen on the ground. Springfield Medical Care Systems is a federally qualified health center, which means they have a very integrated approach to primary care, something that helps in incorporating lifestyle medicine. I would say, you know, kind of the unique part of what our system is doing, and particularly with lifestyle medicine, is that really working to be integrated in a component of primary care. So not taking away the primary care patient from the primary care provider, but really working to kind of empower the patient to better manage, you know, what their presenting concern is or the reason for the referral and eventually have that they're going back to the primary care provider who's going to continue to be their primary care provider, but ideally with some less chronic conditions on their plate. Um, And it's fairly similar model to what we've done with integrated behavioral health and primary care in our system is that it's really working as a team, right? So rather than go to the primary care provider and say, this person's depressed or this person has type two diabetes, go to the specialist and they'll manage it is, we're gonna manage it together. And that might mean some more frequent appointments with lifestyle medicine or with behavioral health, but ultimately it's still, there's a shared medical record. We're in the same buildings, we're in the same exam rooms often. We're gonna share back and forth with that provider. Another thing that helps is that lifestyle medicine practitioners across the country have built templates with clinical evidence behind them. We discussed this in the Medically Tailored Meals episode as well. To expand the reach of a new medical approach, it's important to have research-backed guidance to help practices feel confident that if you do this set of actions, you can look for this range of clinical responses. One program used at Springfield is called CHIP. CHIP is just one of the very many things that people who go through the lifestyle medicine program are offered. It's a 
a key tool that lifestyle medicine docs use to help patients operationalize the recommendations of lifestyle medicine into practical applications, practical use in their life. So the the CHIP program is called a Complete Health Improvement Program. Um, it's owned from a, by a company called Lifestyle Medicine Institute in California. It was created by a very famous researcher doctor named um, Hans Diehl. And what it does is there's 19 sessions, so patients sign up to go through 19 sessions. So it covers about two and a half months. And these are live facilitated sessions. So there's a facilitator and you have to go through a certification process to actually be able to facilitate the, the program for patients. So um, patients go through 19 one hour sessions and the sessions cover primarily the six pillars of lifestyle medicine. The team at Springfield Medical Care Systems also work in programs that emphasize combining healthcare resources with community resources. One such program that you heard referenced last episode is RiseVT. The RiseVT partnership helps this team both serve individual patients and make community-level change to reinforce healthy lifestyle patterns. Part of my role is supported by RiseVT, so that covers the focus on population health community health um, and is very focused on infrastructure change. So making movement and healthful eating uh, easier to accomplish through your regular lifestyle. So part of that was RISE helped to fund additional bike racks throughout town um, and some additional programs like the snowshoe rental programs that are going on now. This concludes our two-part episode on lifestyle medicine. If you haven't listened to the first half, I recommend going back and checking it out. You can find that episode, plus links to additional materials, in the show notes at plainerenglish.org. If we've reached this point and you're saying to yourself that I missed one pretty obvious part of making a healthy diet familiar, the part where we introduce children to lots of vegetables so that they can form healthy eating patterns early in life, then don't worry. That's exactly the topic we're going to tackle next time on the Policy in Plainer English podcast.